It's good to be with you all, and if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name's Joe, and I'm pastor here at Central City Church, and uh, it's good to be in worship together. Uh, I want to let you know a couple of things that are happening in the life of our community. Um, one of the things that's kind of unique about us, and um, uh, you know, it's, it's not uncommon, especially in the Protestant church, to be very protective of who's up front. The, the, the speaker, the pulpit's kind of like this holy thing that you have to control, and, and, and only the right message is communicated on every Sunday. That's not how we operate, and uh, that's one of the reasons, what I mean by that is we, we, we embrace a variety of voices. So throughout the year, and we've done this since the very beginning, we are constantly inviting people to come in and share their story, to share their thoughts, to speak on a particular topic. Um, we don't invite them in because uh, I expect you to agree with everything anyone says, um, but rather because I think it's really important to hear different perspectives. So uh, we're going to continue to do that, and we, we're, uh, we've got a, three guest speakers lined up as part of a new series that we're going to be doing throughout 2023, starting now and into 2023, called Voices of Justice. So I'm going to put this up here. Um, and uh, I'm really excited. We'll do this a couple of times, but here's the first round. Um, on November 27th, so that's uh, Thanksgiving weekend. I'm sure you all are going to, uh, uh, if, if you can get up in the morning on that Sunday after eating a bunch and get here or tune in, uh, we're going to have Reverend Dr. Charles W. Ferguson. He's a uh, pastor at a historically black church on the south side, and he's become a, a friend of mine, and uh, he's going to come and preach. And then on December 11th, a couple weeks after that, we're having Teresa Gibson. She's with the Community Refugee and Immigration Services, or what we call CRIS. And uh, she's going to talk a little bit about immigration and refugees in Columbus specifically. And our Christmas Eve offering, in partnership with that, so every year Christmas Eve we give our offering away. So our Christmas Eve offering is going to go towards Chris. I think we're going to be either using the funds, and there'll be some more information about this, but um, we're going to be putting together welcome kits because they're out of welcome kits. So welcome kits are these things, these kits they put together for immigrants or refugees who are coming into Columbus. And we're going to try to put some of those together so you'll get more information on that. And then the, the offering will also help support some of that work. Um, so she's going to talk more about that, and she's going to have some guests with her. And then in the new year, on January 22nd, Timothy Cho, um, if you remember, we were bringing Mosaic Coffee into our space uh, for a couple of weeks um, and uh, he owns Mosaic Coffee, which uh, supports um, uh, people of color uh, and hires people of color. It specifically supports that avenue and is also a bit of a racial justice advocate. So he's going to come. He'll share and probably engage in some kind of interview around what he's doing at his church and other places to engage in racial justice in the work around that. So I'm really excited about this lineup. Um, we're aiming just once a month uh, to have a different voice come and speak to us about their vision for justice and the church. So I'm really excited, and I hope that you'll mark your calendars for those Sundays. You're not going to want to miss them. They're really, really good. The other thing I want to let you know that's very important is um, we've uh, been at St. Luke's now for, uh, we've been renting this space for probably, well, since the since we gathered back together after COVID. So it's been over, I think it's, we're going on exactly a year now. I'm not very good with dates, so my apologies. But we've been here for a little while, and this is like our seventh place we've met in since we started as a church, and we've moved around a lot. And we were really grateful to be here um, because the sanctuary has become a beautiful space for us. We, uh, it's a good mixture of ancient and future. Um, you know, it's it's got that, that, that feel that you have in a sanctuary, but we still have TVs, so it's a good mix. But uh, we were really excited about it because the children's ministry downstairs 
upstairs, and uh, we have a really great space. Um, in fact, some, some of my friends who are part of the launch team in theater, if you remember, we set up children's space next to the bar. It was horrible. We've not had good children's space. Anyone who, anyone remember the theater days? We had a few of you here? Yeah, a few of you. Um, you'll have to go down and check out the new space. Yeah, it's much better. Um, really excited about it. Well, we've actually been in a relationship with St. Luke's for a really long time. And um, one thing you might not know, the pastor, Reverend Stephen Fuel of St. Luke's United Methodist Church, uh, is being a good friend of mine. We meet every week, Tuesday at noon, or whenever I get here, um, and we hang out for an hour Every week, uh, we go to the. We've started going to the Christmas lights every year together. I mean, we've just become very good friends, and um, we've been in conversation with them and with him and, and with their leadership. And we're now at a place where St. Luke's is beginning a conversation with us. They've initiated it where they want to explore what a merger might look like, what it might look like for us to be in relationship together more holistically. So St. Luke's does a lot of really great things. Uh, they meet at 11 o'clock for uh, worship. They have a friendship class that they oversee downstairs during ours. So it serves adults with uh, different disabilities. So uh, very regularly, there might be people who wander through the building or through our worship service, and we really celebrate that. But if you wonder what's going on, it's a friendship class usually. And uh, they, are, uh, they do a variety of other things in the community, and we're really excited about talking with them. Um, what it means for us, so they're having an all-church meeting, I think, next week to discuss it more, and um, we, uh, haven't, we haven't scheduled a meeting for us to discuss it, but we might do that. I will say that I'm open to any thoughts you have on the matter. The biggest thing for us is um, it's an opportunity. This if this conversation goes forward, the biggest change for us will be this would become our forever home um, here at St. Luke's. So that's kind of cool, especially after being in so many locations. And for St. Luke's, it's an opportunity for us to support what they're already doing. And uh, I, I know if, there's actually a conversation earlier today about church mergers, uh, and they don't always go well. And sometimes there's a merger, it's really just a takeover. And we, were we were chatting about this. Um, we're really trying hard not to do that. Um, so we're going to continue to, you know, if things move forward, St. Luke's, would we'd continue to have a traditional service at 11 o'clock. We'd continue to have a friendship class, a variety of things like that, so that we can really be a place that supports one another and loves one another really well. I'm just letting you know the conversation's happening, and uh, there might be opportunities to engage in that, so be on the lookout. If you, if you have any questions or thoughts, you can reach out to me, but uh, I didn't want you to find out through the, you know, some other place that the conversation was happening is happening, and it's a good thing. It's something that we've been talking about and praying about uh, for a really long time. So with that, um, like always, let me know if you have any questions, and um, uh, let's pray, and then we'll open up Scripture and get into it. God, I come before you, and we give you thanks. God, we know that you are able to do far greater than we could ever think or imagine. We trust that your spirit is here right now, that before we showed up, you were already present, that we're not the one that invites you into this space, but rather you are inviting us constantly into your presence for where can we go to escape your spirit. So open our eyes that we might see, open our ears that we might hear as your word is proclaimed. Meet us in this holy moment. Your name, amen. 
right. I, I forgot. Hold on one second. I need to get something before we go. So just one moment here. Sorry, this is a little awkward. We'll get it here. Yes. There we go. It's fine. All right. It's a surprisingly heavy, heavy bench here. All right. So, this uh, bench has nothing to do with today's sermon. Other than, I wanted you all to watch someone carry something heavy. And um, because uh, our scripture reading today comes from Galatians chapter 6. And it says, carry... I actually was thinking about this, reasons why you might not carry someone else's burden. Ironically, a placement for rest can actually be very heavy. Here's the reasons I came up with. Um, Number one, uh, they seem to be handling it just fine themselves. Did anyone think that, like, oh, Joe's got this? Yeah, I've I've never lifted weights, but I got it. Um, Another reason you might not carry someone else's burden, number two, it doesn't look that heavy. Did anyone think that? No? You're like, no, that actually looks pretty heavy. Um, Number three, um, they're making it look worse than it is. Uh, to be fair, I did grunt and make sounds more than I needed to to, to accentuate the, the heaviness. Um, number four, um, do they even need to be carrying that? Which is a very legitimate question in this particular scenario. No, I do not, and yet I did. But have you ever thought that about someone else's burden? That they're, you don't really need to be, why would I help you carry your burden when you don't need to be carrying it to begin with? Number five, um, I think it's better if I just encourage them from a distance. Anyone ever do that, yeah? Good job, you've got this, you've got this. I think one of the biggest reasons Number six, the biggest reason might be they didn't ask for help. And if you had even offered, I would have told you, no, I got it. So they didn't ask for help, or they tell you no thanks. I wonder, I wonder how many of us are carrying burdens where that's what we handle. We, we actually live in this world where people are... Um, secretly hurting. We live in a world where we have become so individualistic that it is um, faux pas or inappropriate to let people know that you're hurting. In this perfect world of social media and Instagram, and you, you gotta have the perfect life, I've heard a couple of stories just this month where people have been hurting, carrying very heavy burdens, but didn't want anyone to know. Have you ever done that? You don't have to answer out loud. If you have, you probably won't admit it anyways, because it's, you know, we, we, we want to keep it a secret. We carry these heavy burdens, and we don't want anyone else to know. We're in a, a series right now, what it means to love your neighbor. And, and, and two weeks ago, we talked about diversity and inclusion. One of the biggest things I wanted you to take away, and it's a mantra for me this month. I've talked to a couple people about it already. I want you to remember this, is what it means to be inclusive is to let people be something you don't understand. 
Just let people be something you don't understand. Believe them when they say, this is who I am. Let people be something you don't understand. That is one of the ways in which we can love people who are different from us. Last week, we talked about justice and mercy. We mostly talked about justice. Remember, mercy is, is uh, you have people who have been knocked into a river. Mercy is pulling them out of the river, and justice is going upstream and figuring out who's pushing them in. So we talked a lot about justice, and we spent some time in Micah, and uh, we uh, talked about what it means to engage in the world of politics and injustice and trying to make a world a better place. So we spent some time around justice. This is an important way to love your neighbor. And here's what the whole series is about, is First John says that if you don't love your neighbor, you can't claim to love God. So this is very significant, this thing we're talking about. This is how we love God. So how can you say you love God if you hate your neighbor? So First John says. So the way in which we love our neighbor is very, very important to our relationship with God and our status with God. And so we love uh, people who are different from us, diversity, inclusion. We, we engage in acts of justice and trying to change the way in which the world operates. And today we're going to talk about what it means to love people who are close to us, who are in our community, who are hurting. To help us do that, um, I want to show a very short video. Uh, we've used this video before. It's worth watching again. We're going to watch the whole thing. Um, it's, it's probably my second favorite video on empathy and what it means to love people who are hurting. Um, the, my first favorite is actually by, uh, by uh, Avery, who's here. Not to point you out, but he's got a great little TED Talk, uh, which you can check out. On, on, it's actually on our website now. Um, but this one uh, is, is, is almost as good as that, Avery, and uh, it's a little shorter. But um, it's uh, by the wonderful Brene Brown. Is that video ready? Let, let's watch this video together. I'm sure you've seen it too. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, and climb down. I know what it's like down here, and you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. <laughs> I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. 
<laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. Yeah, you, a few of you have seen that, probably clips of that before. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, pretty, pretty popular. You can take it off. Um, and that's what I want to talk about today. She, she references Teresa Wiseman, who's a nursing scholar, on some of the, 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 the basic ingredients of empathy. We can, can you put that up for me? She says um, uh, that empathy is, is kind of these four things. The first one is perspective taking, willingness to, to view the world from someone else's perspective. Number two is to stay out of judgment. And this is really hard. Um, I'll be honest to tell you uh, that when, when I see people you know, suffer, there's something in us as humans that think like, well, what, why? You know, what did they do to cause that, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the ways we, we encounter empathy is that we stay out of judgment. That we don't judge them for being in the situation that they're in. And this is really, you know, depending on who you are, this can be really easy. But I've seen this many, many times, especially for people who are in poverty. Oh, instead of feeling empathy for someone who's struggling in poverty, I've seen so many people, myself included, be like, well. And then they fill in the blank with some reason why that person is struggling or homeless or whatever. So we got to, so empathy, though, stay out of judgment. Three is recognize emotions. And I'll be honest with you, as someone who's neurodiverse, and I also know that there's quite a few people in our community who are neurodiverse, this is sometimes difficult. But this is part of empathy, is learning to recognize emotions and then communicating back the emotions that you see. I was thinking about these very simple guidelines, and I was immediately taken to a story in the Gospels, a story where I see Jesus doing this exact thing. I mean, he, this nurse, uh, nursing scholar is not coming up with this, what she was trying to do is articulate what already happens. People who tend to be very empathetic, what are they doing? And so you can go back all the way to the time of Jesus, over 2,000 years ago, and you can see Jesus engaging in these same principles, because she's articulating what humans do when they do it well. So what I want to do is I want to spend some time in John chapter 11. Now, I don't have, uh, most of the verses are not going to be up on the screen. So if you want to follow along, there is a Bible in your pew, like a paper one. And I can even tell you the page number if you're into that sort of thing. Um, it's uh, page number 1668, um, uh, uh, 1668. It's John chapter 11. So you can also go there on your phones or whatever else. Uh, there will be a verse later that I'll put up. But uh, I want to read this passage and just share a few thoughts as a perfect example of what it looks like to, be, to care for those who are hurting. What does it mean to be a community that cares for those who are hurting? What it means to be a community for cares for each other. So in John chapter 11, it's the story about the death of Lazarus. It starts like this. 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1 on page 1668. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. So it starts right there. Starts with something that can happen to all of us. In fact, it happens to all of us, right? We've all been sick at one point or another. We've all suffered in some way or another. Um, and Lazarus is no exception. So it is a basic reality of human nature, friends. If you are here and you're interested in this community and you're invested in this community, then you're going to get to know people. And I'm going to tell you right now that the people you're going to get to know are going to at some point hurt. 
They're going to hurt. And, 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 and I can't tell you why they're going to hurt. They might get sick. They might get depressed. They might feel anxious. They might feel suicidal. The whole gamut of the human expression I've experienced in our tiny little church, probably in a given six-month period, all right? Because we're human. So Lazarus, no exception, he gets sick. And I promise you, you're going to run into people who get sick or hurt in some way. So he was from Bethany, which is the village of Mary and his sister Martha. So he's got family. And Bethany is close to Jerusalem. Uh, This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So it's referencing another story. You can go and read about that story. So the sisters sent word to Jesus. Lord... The one you love is sick. We're told a little bit about this uh, relationship, aren't we? They know that Jesus loves Lazarus. So there was some kind of relationship. We don't know the full context of the relationship, but they had been, there's a sense that they were more than just like Jesus, you know, Jesus loves everyone, which is uh, not always a helpful thing to say. Um, But Jesus does love everyone, but you get a sense here that Jesus loved Lazarus in in a personal intimate sort of way. The one that you love is sick. Well, when Jesus heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So everyone's on the same page here. Jesus loves this guy, okay? Mary knows that, Martha knows that, Lazarus knows that, Jesus knows that. Everyone's self-aware, at least of those four people. This, there, is a, there is a love in their relationship. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, now he loves him. Verse, uh, verse uh, um, 6, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he loved him so much that he stayed where he was two more days. <laughs> Which is... Uh, not what you do when somebody is hurting. You know, we talk about how Jesus never sinned. And, uh, um, and so something about this must not be sinful in, in my mind. It's something about him pausing for a couple of days before responding to his friend. Um, now, how do you think they felt about it? Waiting too long to respond to somebody. I'll tell you right now as a pastor, I've waited too long to respond to people who are hurting. And it usually doesn't go over well. I've probably waited too long to respond to you at some point, if you've ever been hurting. But he waits two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea. And they say, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you there, and yet you are going to go back there. So here's the problem. Uh, Jesus' ministry was mostly in the northern part of Israel, in a place called Galilee. So they're going to have to travel all the way down south uh, to the area around Jerusalem where the people, uh, the Israelites, hated Jesus quite a bit. You know, ultimately he gets uh, put on a cross in Jerusalem. So there was a lot of animosity around Jesus. I mean, that's where his story um, not ends, but that's, you know, it leads to death. They, did, they were not fans of Jesus in that particular part. Um, it, it was like Washington, D.C. Like, you could say one thing in Montana, but if you go to D.C., it's a different story, right? So, like, they're traveling. They're going to have to go to Jerusalem where they don't like them. Last time he was there, they tried to kill him. That's what it means when they said they tried to stone him, just so that we're all on the same page. Uh, they were trying to kill him. And uh, Jesus says, no, my friend is sick. I'm going to go. So he answers, are there not 12 days of... Uh, hours of daylight, a man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by the world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. 
I don't know, Jesus loves parables, so he answers with a parable. We don't have time to get into this parable, but this is who Jesus is. This is how he talks. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. And Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then they told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, who's called Didymus, remember Thomas, doubting Thomas? Thomas is the most courageous of the disciples. He says to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So they know that if they go in this direction, bad things are going to happen. But they go anyways, and Thomas encouraged the rest of the disciples to come along. So here's what happens. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said, no, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. And the teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, and he was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews had been there... Uh, had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And here's what I want us to focus on. So Jesus arrives, he's outside the village, Mary and Martha, the sisters of the one who had passed away, all come, and all of their friends and family who are there with them all come out to Jesus, who's out on the outskirts of the village. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in in, in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Let me put that verse up on the screen. You have to remember, Jesus already knew that Lazarus was going to die. And in this story, he knew, he already told you how it's going to end. He told him that Lazarus was going to rise again. This is what we call a miracle, right? This guy was going to die. Jesus knew that. And Jesus was going to fix the problem. Oh, wouldn't you love to be able to fix people's problems like that? I'm here to tell you that I have not been able to fix people's problems in the way that Jesus does. <laughs> Jesus snaps his finger, Lazarus back, everything's good. You lost something, I give it back to you. You're sick, I heal you, you're dead, you're alive, Jesus fixes the problem. That's what's going to happen. But look what Jesus does before that happens. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Can you put up the next slide? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Perspective taking. He, he already, look, his perspective is this. This is God's perspective. I'm going to work it all out. 
That's God's perspective. I got this under control. And he could have kept that perspective as God in the flesh. I got this all. It's going to be fine. God's going to make this work out just fine for you. He could have held on to the, the big perspective. But what does Jesus do? He enters into their perspective, right? He says, oh, they're really grieving. And his response is, hey, stop crying. I'm going, to get, I'm going to fix this problem for you. That's not how he replies, is it? He says, look, he sees them weeping. He sees his family and friends and all the Jews who came out from Jerusalem to support this great man who had passed away. He sees them, and he's deeply moved in judgment. He's deeply moved in spirit. He avoids judgment. He recognizes their emotions, and then he communicates back the emotions that he sees. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. And I have to tell this story every time I read it, so my apologies for those who've heard it already. My brother was a bit of a, uh, he was a troublemaker. He was in a youth group, and he was acting up, and he got in trouble or something, and he was arguing with the teacher in youth group. This was a long time ago. And the, the teacher, like, I don't know, somewhere the argue, argument escalated, the teacher, like, challenged him, like, said something like, you, like, challenged him to, like, quote a verse, like, what's your favorite verse of the Bible, and didn't expect him, and he's like, John 11, 35, Jesus wept. And I'm like, if you can't remember any other verse of the Bible, it's actually a pretty good one. It's two words, very simple, and it's very profound. Jesus wept even though he was going to fix the problem. Here's a very important lesson we have to learn as Christians. It's something I'm still trying to figure out. Curing people is different than healing them. You put that up on the, I think there's a slide for it. Curing does not equal healing. And when you see these miracle stories of Jesus, Jesus is, and you get lost in the curing because Jesus happens to also be able to do both. And you're like, oh, he raises Lazarus from the dead. We're not even going to look at that part of the story. We're going to end before we get to Lazarus. I'm telling you, he, he comes back alive. It's great. But we're not going to read that part of the story. We're going to focus on the healing that he does, because healing isn't the same as curing. And this is something that medical professionals actually talk about, I believe. It's something I've recently read about um, in this really great book I'm in the middle of called uh, My Body is Not a Prayer Request um, by uh, Amy Keeney. She's, uh, she spends most of her time in a wheelchair. She can kind of walk with a, with a cane, and she has this phenomenal book around disability justice and what it means, and she's had so many people pray for her to like heal her, um, to, but really they're just praying to cure her, which is not the same as healing somebody. See, Jesus is able to do both, I believe in miracles, but Jesus doesn't just cure Lazarus. And when you look at other healing stories, I encourage you, if you study the Bible, look into it, pay attention. There's this really beautiful, there's this one story where really heals this guy, and uh, he gives him his sight, so his sight, he's cured, his sight is cured, but then there's some interaction, and he, he, he ends up, and he eventually like, stands up for Jesus, and then at the end of the story, it says that he was healed. So he was cured earlier on in the story. His sight was given back. But then later, because of his relationship with Jesus, he was healed. So this is how she explains it in, um, uh, in her book. She says, uh, modern medicine still recognizes the difference between curing and healing. Curing is a physical process. It's individual and usually fairly rapid and concentrates on eliminating disease. Healing is a socio-cultural process. It focuses on restoring interpersonal, social, and spiritual dimensions. It's lengthy and ongoing because it's the process of becoming whole. She goes on to give you this illustration. I think it explains it very, very well. She says, think of a trauma victim, someone who was in a war and got shot. 
It doesn't take very long. If the, if the wound is treated and you've got a gunshot wound, you can be cured of that. It can be, the, the wound itself can be patched up and you can heal from it. But that does nothing to heal the trauma, does it? And the PTSD that comes from being in war and getting shot is a much longer process. And what we're called to do is not just pray for cures, but to engage in healing. And curing somebody, I don't know. I mean, we, we can pray for a miracle. We can uh, uh, be thankful for modern medicine. We can get treatment that we need and all of that. But healing, engaging in healing, well, that's done through empathy. No response, Brene Brown says, no response is going to make this better. What makes it better is connection. I'll be honest with you. I'm not very good at this. And if you know me at all, you know that. Um, I am very good at feeling empathy, but I'm not always very good at showing it. And I, I imagine there's probably some others in the room who, who relate. Uh, and I think there's probably even a sense that we all are given different gifts, right? So that's just not my, that's not my gift. And, and I, but I do worry, and I carry this burden with me, that because I'm not very good at it, maybe that's why our church isn't always very good at it. And I would say that of all the things that we're going to talk about in these series of what it means to love your neighbors, this is the one where we probably need to grow the most. And it's probably not all my fault, by the way. I think there's a lot of reasons. COVID made it really hard. You know, the first step to empathy whether you're talking about the story of Jesus or the story that Brene Brown says, do you realize the first step in both of those illustrations is proximity? You know, in the story where the person falls into a pit, the first step to empathy is go down in the pit, right? Jesus' story, the first step to empathy for Jesus was actually going to the village, which meant a cross-country journey to Bethany. And COVID made this really hard because we were told not to be close to each other, right? So now there's like this deep separation between us. The first step to empathy is showing up in people's lives, and we've forgotten how to do that. We're too busy. Um, our kids are too consuming. <laughs> I got a six-year-old. Watch out. I don't know why. What makes it hard for you? You can think about it. Proximity. Proximity is the first step. Getting close enough to somebody you can actually help carry their burden, right? You ain't carrying this from over there, guys, right? The first step is actually proximity. The first step is proximity. And the second one is leaving behind our judgment, leaving behind our assumptions, leaving behind all of that, and being willing to enter into someone's story. I was recently reading um, this uh, book, oh, The Wounded Healer, by uh, Henry Nouwen, and I commend Henry Nouwen to you. Uh, he tells a story from uh, this old rabbi's teachings uh, about uh, the, the coming of the Messiah. And it's this uh, story about these rabbis going and talking to the prophet Elijah. And they go to Elijah and they say, hey, Elijah, how will we know that the, who the Messiah is, you know, this coming Christ, this coming leader who's going to lead our people. How will we know who the Messiah is? And Elijah says, well, he's already here. 
And he said, well, where is he? He's like, well, he's at the gate of the city. And the gate of the city is where the poor would sit. Um, it's like a, the corner, like an exit ramp. It's where people would come and go, so the poor would sit there to, to get alms. So think of an exit ramp with a guy holding a sign. He says, Jesus is over at the exit ramp holding a sign. He says, well, how will we know which person holding a sign, so to speak, is the Messiah? And he says, well, most people who sit at the gate at this time have wounds. They're, they're, they're sick. And they've got all of these bandages, and they're bandaging up their wounds. And uh, the, the, the average person who's bandaged up their wounds, every day they've got to change your bandages. And so the average person will take all of the bandages off at once, dress all of the wounds, and then wrap the bandages back up. He says, but the Messiah does it differently. He says, the Messiah takes one bandage off at a time, dresses that wound, and then bandages it back up, and then does the next. Just in case someone needs them, they'll be ready. You see, if you take off all of your bandages and then you're stuck putting them all back on. But the Messiah, you'll know that it's the Messiah sitting at the exit gate with a, holding a sign because he'll just bandage one wound at a time so that he's always ready to help each other. The point of the story is this picture that the Messiah would be a wounded healer. The Messiah would actually come as an imperfect, uh, as a perfect human, but as a, as a, as a, as a, as a human with, with limitations and would be beaten and would, would hurt. And that we, in our community, whatever community you're a part of, are caring for each other as wounded healers. I've got wounds. And in some ways, my wounds make me even better at caring for other people. In some ways, it can make it harder. But none of us come to this journey whole. We're all wounded healers. I don't know what yours are. I don't know what pain you're carrying, what bandages you're wearing, what hurt you have, but we're called to be people who don't allow our own hurts as an excuse to help somebody else. We're in this together. I don't have it all figured out. I got my own stuff I'm working on. I'm sure you do as well. But I'm here, and you are as well. We're called to love one another, show up in each other's lives. And this is going to be hard. This takes a lot of commitment on our part. I think it's become very difficult for us in our world that we live in, and the lives that we live, and the busyness to show up in each other's lives. I'm going to invite the band to come up and uh, get ready, and we're going to actually share in communion together. And You know, it's so interesting. It was the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread and wine and he offered it to his disciples. It was the night before he would be hung on a cross and become our wounded healer that he breaks bread and uh, offers it to his disciples. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We serve a God who is willing to come and become human, to feel pain, to experience hurt, to experience betrayal, and to engage in healing. So as we come forward and we take uh, the bread and the juice, we're reminded 
what it means to be the body of Christ broken in this world. Broken people, beggars pointing to where the food is, all together trying to figure out what it means to be God's people in this world. Uh, Communion's open to anyone who wants it um, here at Central City Church. So if, if you're interested in sharing the Lord's Supper, if you're hungry for forgiveness and for life, you're welcome to come as you feel led. Um, uh, we'll have you come up uh, this side and come and receive and then go back on this side. That way we don't you know, get into a traffic jam. And uh, so come as you feel led um, after I pray. God, we come before you and we give you thanks. We ask that your spirit would fall on these gifts of bread and juice and make them be for us the body and blood of Christ. Holy Spirit, come and meet us in this space. Come and heal us. Show us what it means to be your people. What it means to carry each other's burdens. In your name, amen.